0: Thanks for leading us, guys. Great job. Um, As as Jay alluded to earlier, today we have uh, Jesse and Elise with us, Antwistle. And Jesse, sorry, I'm sure your bubble was blown when you came in and found out all this wasn't for you. But. Anyway, Jesse and Elise, we've prayed for Elise for decades, and she's the daughter of Todd and Sally, and now God has just really been tugging on their heart um, to uh, be a part of sharing the gospel in a Muslim country. So they've, uh, they've just really felt God calling them to Iraq, and so that's their plan this fall, and uh, I'll let them take it from here. Hello, it's so good to be here. First of all, we just want to say thank you. This is a privilege and an honor, and we just feel so blessed to be sent by this church. Um, We couldn't do what we'd like to do without your prayers and your giving and just your kindness towards us. So, thank you for the chance to be here. Um, I just wanted to share a little bit from a week that I actually spent in northern Iraq, and um, we got the chance to Uh, partner with a local church for that week and just see what they were doing and the work um, they were doing with refugees there. So we got to go and pray and hear stories from refugees. And it was just amazing to hear what God was doing there and just the incredible openness to the gospel. The church was saying, um, we need more people to disciple the people that want to be discipled. It's just incredible. And one day we're driving back and I um, looked out the window and this is the picture that I saw. These white fields, and God um, just brought into my mind this verse from John 4 that says, "...do do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together." And just seeing that picture and just hearing of this openness got us so excited. And now we're hearing the same thing in southern Iraq, just incredible openness to the gospel. And Jesse's gonna get to tell you more about Iraq and just God's greater vision too. Oh. And can you click it? We also have a new picture that we'll have outside for you too.
1: <laughs> Thanks, darling. Um So yeah, we are going to southern Iraq. We're going to be going to Basra, um, which is a city of a little over two million people, and it's the largest city in southern Iraq. And we are really, really excited for uh, what's gonna be going on there. So we'll just start off talking a little bit about what we're going to be doing there. Um, So, it's two million, uh, nearly all Muslim, in all of southern Iraq, there's 12 and a half million people. So this is kind of a uh, big picture, um, but of course, we're going to be primarily working in Basra. Uh, and then there are 50 evangelical local Christians. In, that's in southern Iraq, so that 12 and a half million people. And there's 10 missionaries in that area. Um, and that's counting us, actually, which is funny because we're not even there. Um, but... Uh, every single one of those people God loves. And um, there is, uh, I, I just want to be um, completely honest, there is a Chaldean Catholic church apparently there, but uh, from what the local believers have said, uh, they're, they're not really um, following Jesus, and we'll have to wait and see until we get there to what extent um, they actually are or not. So, what we're going to be doing there, we're going to be... Um, basically focusing on four things. We're going to be abiding in Jesus because, as you probably know, um, we bear fruit if we abide in Jesus and we don't if we don't. So we're going to be spending quality time with with God. Um, We're going to be teaching English, uh, as in most of the Arab world. Um, You can't just go in and uh, be a missionary. It's illegal to uh, try and proselytize or share your faith. So um, I'm going to be teaching English at uh, a school that, a, that our team leader has started. And um, it's really well respected, which is great because it gives us a really good identity in the community and they'll, they'll trust you more if you have something legitimate that you're bringing and something you're helping them with. So I'm going to be doing that um, and then we are going to be living life with the people, uh, growing in our ability to communicate with them. We're going to have to uh, learn a new dialect, uh, which has a lot of similarities to uh, what we have already learned, but there will be significant differences as well. So we're going to be growing in our ability to communicate because it's so important that we can share in ways that they understand. And finally, um, kind of our purpose for, for being there is we're going to be Evangelizing, discipling, and planting uh, churches. Um, That's kind of the the long term, big picture goal is that through uh, Jesus, through God, uh, we would see a movement of churches and we would eventually not even need to be in Iraq. So, as we're going, I wanted to talk to you about a couple of things. what we're gonna face, uh, why we can face it, and then how that applies here. So what we can, we're gonna face, um, I have a friend, his name is Mahmoud, and Mahmoud is, uh, we've been friends for a while, and we've carried up a, an email conversation for a long, long time. And just the other day, I was emailing him, and I just, I was tired of kind of going around the same circle, so I, I decided to try a different Tack, and I asked him, so Mahmoud, what does it say in the Quran about Jesus? Mahmoud is, is very convinced that I'm going to become a Muslim. Um, and I asked him, what, what does it say in the Quran about Jesus? And he, he says, oh, you know, it says that he is the word of God. And I was like, oh, great. So then I, sent, I, I emailed him and I said, okay, so what do you think this, this means? And I quoted to him the, the passage where it says. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So I quoted that, and I sent it, and he responded and was talking more about the Quran and about these, you know, other passages that talked about Jesus. And I was like, Mahmoud, I, I, you know, I asked, what, what do you think this means? Uh, that's saying, you know, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And his response was, oh, but but you have to understand, the Bible's been corrupted. That part isn't from the original um, scripture. And uh, that it's not in the Quran. So I, I don't know what it means, but I don't really have to because it's not true. And that, that is just, it's, it's very common. We meet that all the time in the Muslim world, that the Bible has been corrupted and because it's been corrupted, that they don't trust it. So if you take away the Bible, you know, what, 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 do, we, you know, what do we have to, to show them about Jesus? I mean, another common belief is that Jesus didn't actually go to the cross. He didn't actually die. So if that fun, those fundamental things are, are just completely disbelieved from the outset, it becomes very, very difficult to share with them. Another time, I was, um, I was in Cairo, and I was talking with a friend of mine, and um, he decided that I really needed to be able to uh, talk to a sheikh, a, um, a religious leader there, because uh, he, he really respected this religious leader. He was kind, kind of being discipled by him, and he wanted uh, my questions to get answered by this guy. So we go to this mosque, and, you know, we're sitting down with this sheikh, and we're talking back and forth about different things. And um, at one point, you know, he's saying how the Bible's been corrupted, which is very common, as I said before. And uh, I asked him, you know, when did it get corrupted? And he said, oh, it's, it's about 300 years after Jesus died. Paul came along, and he completely changed the Bible. And I was like, Paul lived 300 years after Jesus? And he was like, oh, yes, 300 years. And I was like, uh, you know, I, I had basically to say, well, we, I disagree with that. But until we get into all of the, the history and we talk about that, you know, there's no way I can convince you. So anyway, he asked me, what is one of the problems that you have with Islam? Like, why don't you believe Islam? And I said, well, okay, um... You know, one of the difficulties I have is with the way women are treated in Islam. Um, It doesn't seem fair the way that they're treated. So then he tells me a story of one of his parishioners or, you know, uh, attendees at the mosque. Um, And he, this man is, is rather wealthy, and he was having difficulty in his marriage. So he came to the sheikh, and he was asking him, you know, like, I'm married and I've got these kids, and, but me, my wife and I are not really getting along and I don't feel like it's, it's really going well between me and her and, you know, what should I do? And he says, well, get another wife. So um, the guy got another wife. He, he was wealthy, so he put her up in a separate apartment and the deal with her was that she would never have kids. So, you know, he's got his, his wife and he's got his family and then he's got his other wife that he can enjoy. And um, the Sheikh's point with this, I think what he was trying to say is, you know, look how great we men have it in Islam. You know, you know kind of his response to have, many having difficulty with the way women are treated was, you know, look, look what we can do as, as men. And so, so we've got this, you know, um, this disbelief in the fundamental basis of our faith uh, we've got um, these these rules in Islam that, that a lot of people, a lot of men find attractive. And then, um, we have another difficulty. So, in Islam, the worst sin you can commit is to convert. Because if you convert, you're saying that not only is... Um, am I uh, dishonorable, you know, am I, I'm bringing dishonor on myself, bringing shame on myself because I'm accepting this new religion, I'm changing my belief, but you are also bringing dishonor on your whole family because um, it's saying that they were not good enough people for them to raise you correctly so that you would, you know, continue to follow the truth. And uh, so, so that's like the worst thing you can com- commit is to convert to another religion. So what will often happen is that if someone converts, then the family, if, if it's not the whole family that comes along with them, the family, in response to that, has to show that they're honorable people. So they'll do really terrible things, you know, they'll, they'll disown their child, they'll sometimes kill their kids. Because that is what uh, restores the honor to the family. And so, what you end up having is this society in which the fundamental beliefs throughout their entire lives have been contradicted. You know, the fundamental beliefs that are the basis for our faith, the, the historicity of the Bible, uh, that Jesus died on the cross, have been contradicted their entire lives. They have these things in Islam that they are so committed to. And, if they were ever to change their religion, they could face really serious persecution. So, you look at that, and you think, like, what what hope is there? But, the hope is God, and it's always been God. So, um, as I was thinking about Sharon today, the verse came to mind. Uh, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. And you might ask, you know, what does that? what, what is attractive about that to a Muslim? Um, and I remember one time that I was in a uh, a car with my friend Muhammad. Um, this is Mohammed up here. And he, he'd become a Christian. And we uh, were, were driving along. We were stuck in traffic. And I was with another missionary as well. So we were talking about girls uh, because all of us were single. So, you know, what else would we be talking about? And um, he was explaining to us that he thought that he might never get married. And the reason was that he'd become a Christian but in Egypt, he still had Muslim written on his identification card. They have ID cards there. And um, you can't change that from Muslim. You, you have to keep it as Muslim if you were born Muslim. So um, he uh, was like, I don't know if I'll ever get married because I don't want to marry a Muslim girl now. But the Christian families in Egypt are not going to trust me. They're not going to trust me because uh, I, I, you know, it says Muslim on my ID card, and they're not going to trust that I have actually, you know, changed my faith. Um, And so there's a good chance that I'll never, you know, meet someone that I'll be able to marry. And I remember my friend Jonathan, who was there in the car, he said to him, you know, Muhammad, I really think that God's going to bless you in this way. I mean, you have sacrificed so much for him. And I really think that he's going to uh, show his favor on you, and he's going to provide a family that's really going to accept you and accept that you have, you know, really changed your your faith and that you're going to be able to marry um, because you've sacrificed so much for God. He's going to bless you with this. And Muhammad, he has got this really deep voice, so he kind of laughs, and he's like, huh, huh, come on, man. and And he says... Imagine that you are one of those millions in Cairo. And of those millions uh, of Muslims, God looks down and he chooses you and he reveals himself to you and he lets you know the truth and, and he saves you. I haven't sacrificed anything for God. God sacrificed everything for me. And and so that is, is the God we, we preach. It's the God that never asks of us what he ha- does not give of himself. And that's attractive to have someone to follow, to have God himself to follow as you might suffer, as you might go through these difficulties. So God came to serve and he continues to serve. But That's not all. Jesus, he came full of grace and truth. And um, I was reading this book this one time. It's written by a former Muslim. Uh, his name now is Gabriel. I don't know what his name was before. Um, and he became a Christian, but he, his entire life he was groomed. He li- grew up in a very small um, village in Egypt, and he was groomed to be a religious leader. In his, in his family, and so he was the brother selected among all the brothers that would get a really strong religious education. So he grew up memorizing the Quran, and, and he was so good at it that by the time he went off to university, he had memorized the entire Quran and over a thousand hadith, which are stories about Muhammad. So, um, and some of them are long, some are short, but it's really, really massive uh, body of literature that he had just had memorized, and uh, he went off to the most famous, uh, most highly respected uh, Muslim university in the world. It's called, uh, called El-Azhar, and it's in Cairo, and uh, there he got his master's degree in Islamic studies, and he was working on his doctorate, and he was teaching at the university, so he was teaching at this really prestigious Muslim university. Um, But while he was there, uh, he um, started to question some of the things in Islam, but he was still a Muslim, he just started to ask some difficult questions, you know, like what does Muhammad mean by some certain things, and can we accept this hadith or this hadith, and so he was kind of pushing against the status quo, still as a Muslim, but, but trying to understand better. And so um, a bunch of the other professors, who are all, of course, these religious leaders, uh, kind of had an intervention meeting with him. And they, they brought him to this meeting and they were like, you've got to stop asking these questions because uh, you, you just have to accept this on faith and you can't, you can't challenge these things. And his response was, um, brothers, you know, I want your help in this. You know, we, we we have to ask these sorts of questions in order to grow in our faith, in order to grow as people, in order to really stand solidly on the truth. And, and so I want your help in asking these sorts of things and helping me to find answers for these difficult questions. And they were so angry that he would not give up um, uh, these these difficult th- these difficulties he was having. So um, they told him to leave, and he knew he was in trouble. But that night, he actually got kidnapped by the, uh, the secret police in Egypt, and he got taken to this, um, this kind of secret facility. He doesn't even know where it is, and um, he, was, he was beaten while he was there, and uh, a couple of times, they actually tried to kill him. In fact, the last night he was there, because his government was really high up, uh, sorry, his um, uncle was really high up in the government. And so he found out that his nephew uh, was, had kind of been taken, and so he was using his influence to get him out. And um, so the last night he was there, they took him into this room, and they just left him there. And then they, they brought in this massive, hungry dog, and they just left him in this room with his dog all night long. But the whole night, I mean, as soon as he saw this dog, he just starts praying. And he's like, God, please save me. Please help me. And um, all night long, the dog didn't touch him. So um, he, he managed to get out the next day. They, they let him go. And he was living at home with his family. And he was really, really depressed um, because, I mean, he was no longer a Muslim. He'd given up on that after the way he'd been treated. But he didn't know what else there was, and, and he just didn't know what to believe and he knew, but he knew there was a God because of, of how he had survived these incredibly difficult circumstances that he should have died in, um, in this, this really horrible place. And so, um, he was going to pharmacies in Egypt, and he was getting medicine because kind of to try to deal with the depression, and he was also uh, had insomnia at the time, so he couldn't sleep and, you know, he's going to all these different places, and, and typically, if you have a problem in Egypt, you, you go to a pharmacy. You don't go to the doctor, and then the pharmacist will prescribe something for you. So, he would go to these different pharmacies, and he was getting different medicines, but nothing was working, and, you know, he was, still had insomnia, and one day, um, this pharmacist asked him to describe his symptoms, and he, he you know, he, he described them, and she asked him, you know has. has any of the medicine you've been taking working? And he's like, no, it's not working. And so she passes under the counter of the pharma, you know, the pharmacy table um, a Bible. And she says, you know, just, just read this. And she, she was a Christian. And so he took this Bible and he goes back to his house and he reads it for the first time in his life. And this was a man who had grown up knowing the entire Quran and thousands of Hadith, and when he read the Bible, Jesus was different than Muhammad. And, and he knew that because he had all this background knowledge. I mean, he'd been one of these really respected religious figures, and when he read the Bible, he just saw the difference. He saw the way Jesus treated women. He saw the way Jesus treated sinners. He saw the way Jesus healed people. He saw the way Jesus interacted with those. He saw the way Jesus interacted with those who refused to believe. All sorts of things just stood out to him about Jesus. And it was that attractiveness that let him know, especially when compared with what he'd already learned in Islam, that let him know where the truth was at. So we serve a God who is full of grace and truth, and that speaks to Muslims, and that continues to speak to them. And then, we have the God who is with us. You know, it says at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So this one time, I met a guy in Egypt, and he uh, had become a Christian, and I asked him how he'd become a Christian. And he told me this story where... He had infiltrated a church because he'd been engaged to a girl to get married and he would found out she was a Christian. And he was trying to find some dirt on this church in order to turn them into the government. But eventually they found out of it about it. And the girl left him and he, they, the church kind of kicked him out. And so he went back home and he had this dream. And in his dream... Um, Jesus was standing in front of him and they were both kind of standing above the world. So the world was beneath him and they were kind of standing up in the air above the world. And and Jesus was dressed in the kingly robes he had on in Revelation. And um, Jesus' voice, whenever he spoke, it was so powerful, it was shaking the world. And um, Jesus asked him, why don't you believe in me? What's your question? And his response was, My question is about your blood. Why did you have to die in order that others uh, might be saved? So Jesus disappears from in front of him and reappears a little ways away, this time dressed in the garb of a servant. And in front of Jesus, there's a man who is committing a sin. He wouldn't tell me what it was. He was just sinning. And Jesus starts to plead with him to stop, to stop sinning. But the man can't hear him. He's not listening. And so Jesus starts to yell and to cry, and this man is just continuing to sin. Then Jesus, as he's screaming and crying to this man, he reaches down, and he hurts his own hand, and he falls to his knees, and he reaches out with his blood-filled palm, and he touches this man who's sinning, and immediately the man turns around and is transformed, and he, he leaves his sin, And then Jesus reaches down, and he washes off his hands and his face in the pool of blood and tears at his feet. And then he stands up, and he looks up to heaven, and he laughs. And his laugh is like shaking the world. It's powerful. And then the scene repeats itself. So Jesus is once again in the garb of the servant. This time, instead of one man, it's millions of men, women, and children all around him. And... They're all sinning, and Jesus does the exact same thing. You know, he, he, he starts to plead with them to stop sinning. They won't. He, he cries. He, he screams. He yells. Nothing's working. He falls to his knees. He hurts his own hand, and he touches them with his blood-filled palm, and they're transformed. They turn away from their sin. And then Jesus washes off his hands and his face, and he stands up, and he looks up to heaven, and he laughs. And then all of that disappears. Jesus reappears in his kingly robes in front of this man, and he says, now you will believe. And he woke up, and he believed. And lots and lots of Muslims, when they become Christians, they have had a dream in which Jesus appears to them personally. And the reason that... A missionary told me that he thinks that that is so powerful is because Muslims need to know when they're making this life-changing, difficult decision that God is going to be with them. So that's the God we serve. We serve the God who is um, a servant, never asks of us what he does not do himself. We serve a God who uh, is full of grace and truth, and we serve a God who is with us. And you know, I was actually talking with Adam and Stephanie Sarf the other day, and they were sharing kind of what was on their hearts and different ministries that they hoped to get involved in and, and what God had been teaching them, and you know what I thought? I thought, man, I'm going to travel halfway around the world to do some of the same things that you guys are doing here, because because what 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 do, what do you face in your life here? I mean... You still have to be intentional. There's still a lot of brokenness. There's still so many people that don't know the saving love of Jesus that have to be shown that. And you still have the same God that is with you in all of those difficult circumstances that helps you to be a peacemaker, make peace where there is no peace. And so as as we go out from here, um, I just want to remind you and be reminded with you that despite the difficulties, despite whatever you face, that God is with us and that he will be with us. So, let's pray. Dear Lord, I just want to thank you so much um, for this opportunity to share and hear um, from these wonderful people and I just ask that you would uh, bless them and that you would help us all to go out from here and uh, along with you, uh, that we would be able to bring uh, your love to those around us. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.